0: Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. In the legal realm, it's called a dying declaration. That means that when a person is about to die, and they say who was responsible for their death or who had uh, perhaps attacked them, that the courts have continually upheld that that declaration is admissible in court as evidence, even though it's only hearsay because the person who made the declaration, of course, has died and cannot be in court. And so the person who heard it is the one that's having to testify. But there is a condition that must be met before this dying declaration can be admitted as evidence. And that is, the person who makes the declaration must know that death is imminent. But the courts recognize that when a person is about to die, that they weigh their words carefully. And they think seriously and speak what is on their hearts. Our Lord Jesus, in a sense, gave a dying declaration to His disciples and in turn to us as the church when He knew He was about to ascend into heaven after His resurrection. And we find His dying declaration over in Matthew 28, that passage known as the Great Commission where he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now there is only one verb in that passage, in verse 19. And 20. And that verb is make disciples. And it is a command. What Jesus is saying is as you are going, and going in the original is a participle, as you are going, make disciples. Teaching, another participle, them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so Jesus' dying declaration to the church is for us to make disciples. Paul was writing Timothy while he was in prison, in a dungeon, had been placed in prison by Nero, who was persecuting the church. And Paul knew that his death was imminent. And so he's writing to young Timothy, a leader of the church, and in turn writing to the church of all ages, important information, important instructions that he wants to pass on before his death. And we find his dying declaration in Second Timothy. Today we're looking at chapter 2. In particular, in verses 1 and 2, he gives this declaration. So therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. His dying declaration is to make disciples. When He says, Entrust. That's a command. Entrust to faithful men what you have learned from Me that they might impart it yet to others. That's disciple making. Now He says, Timothy, a key... It's to realize your strength is in the grace of the Lord Jesus. And everything that is said today, it must be clothed in that strength that is only found in the grace, the enabling power of the Lord Jesus. We cannot make disciples in our own strength. We must have the grace of God. And we do have it. Now, the Bible nowhere commands you to make Christians. Nowhere. You won't find it anywhere where God says make Christians. And the reason is, you and I cannot make Christians. You cannot save anybody. I cannot save anybody. We cannot force anybody to be saved. That is a work of a gracious God. But what we are called to do, and what we can do, is make disciples. That's a responsibility we have. It was Jesus' dying declaration. It was Paul's dying declaration. We are to be disciple makers. If we're going to be disciple makers, though, there are three essential qualities that we must have. In our passage today, Paul takes three images. And these three essential qualities, each are found in, in one of these images, he gives first of all the soldier, then he gives the athlete, and then he gives the farmer. In each of those images, there is an essential quality that you and I must have if we are going to follow our Lord's command and be disciple makers. Look beginning in verse 3 of Second Timothy chapter 2. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say to you, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Did you see the three? The soldier, the athlete, the farmer. First, we come to the soldier. And the essential quality is the wholehearted dedication of a soldier. Paul had plenty of time to observe the Roman soldiers while he was in prison. In fact, at times during his imprisonment, he had a soldier chained to each arm. And so he had plenty of time to look at these soldiers and think about the parallels between the Roman soldier and the soldier of Jesus Christ. And one of the main parallels is the wholehearted dedication. That each must have. A Roman soldier signed up for 20 years. And he could not marry during those 20 years. In addition to the armor that he had to carry with him, he also had to carry a saw and a basket, a pickaxe and an axe, and a thong of leather, a hook, and three days rations. Wholehearted dedication. Times have not changed the quality necessary for a good soldier. Even in our day, the elite soldiers of our armed forces must be characterized by wholehearted dedication. The picture you see before you is of a Navy SEAL. One of the elite forces of our armed forces. Now, if you're going to be a Navy SEAL, you've got to have wholehearted dedication. There's no room to be lackadaisical or to be nonchalant. A soldier expects hardships and suffering. A soldier expects, when he is involved in war, to go with few hot meals to take few baths, if any, to have to sleep either in tents or out in the open, exposed to extremes in the weather. There is constant possibility of death. There is a strictly regimented life. There is unquestioned submission to his authorities. But a good soldier is willing to endure such sufferings and hardships because of His wholehearted dedication. You and I, as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, must be willing to suffer hardships as we serve and as we make disciples. Paul tells Timothy to suffer hardships with him as a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. Expect to suffer, he said, and persevere through it. Don't be a deserter like Homogenes and Phagelius were, as he spoke about in the last part of the previous chapter. These had deserted. They had left Paul and they had left the faith. And Paul said, don't you be that way. As my old football coach used to say, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. A wholehearted, dedicated soldier just gets going when things get tough. That's when His true metal comes out. As you and I are called to be disciple-makers, I can tell you it's not going to be convenient to be a disciple-maker. It's not going to be convenient for you to be a disciple or for you to make disciples. When it comes to family devotions, when it comes to discipling your children or your wife, it's not going to be convenient. I cannot tell you how many times through the years when it has come time for me to have a time of instruction with my children, how inconvenient it was. How I had a thousand other things that I needed to do, good things, and it wasn't convenient. In fact, I don't know if I ever found a convenient time. We're so busy. We all have such demands upon us that convenience is a luxury, isn't it? So, if you're going to be a disciple maker, and you are to be because God commands it, expect it not to be convenient. Expect to have to endure difficulties and hardships. I cannot count how many times when I've said to my kids, Okay, kids. Time to have our devotion. Oh, Daddy, now I'm so I got homework to do, and and I'm doing. You know, I hear parents say to me, "Well, you know, I want to have devotion to my kids, but they don't want to." Join the club. When you stand before God, dads, and He says to you, "Why didn't you have devotion times with your kids?" And you say, "Well, they didn't want to." That's not going to wash. Now, I don't want to sometimes either. But as a soldier, we don't do what we want to do. We do what we're called to do. How many of those soldiers that stormed the beaches at Normandy wanted to be there storming those beaches? I mean, I can't imagine what you would be thinking and feeling as you were in that boat headed toward the beach, knowing that enemy fire was going to be fierce, knowing that the probability that you would die in the next five minutes would be very high. What would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? Would your legs feel like like lead? Thinking, man, when that door comes down and I had... Hit that beach. There may be a bullet waiting for me. But they move forward because of wholehearted dedication. So you and I must be willing to suffer hardships as a disciple maker. Secondly, we must make disciple making a priority in our lives. A good soldier is a soldier through and through. The Roman soldier could not engage in agriculture, trade, or manufacturing. He had the only soldier. A good soldier eats, sleeps, and drinks soldiering. Man, that is his life. That is his first love. He would not think of becoming entangled in the things of everyday living. Paul says in verse 4, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Imagine the commanding officer coming to the Navy SEAL and saying to him, We've got orders we will ship out in 12 hours. He says to his commanding officer, "Uh, We've got a problem i got tickets to the football game for Saturday. I can't go. The army recognizes the importance of freeing up soldiers from being entangled with everyday living. That's why they provide everything they need. They provide housing. They provide medical care. They provide food. A soldier doesn't have to be concerned about anything except being a soldier. And doing what a soldier does. The army takes care of all the rest. Because they know if he is entangled in all the other affairs of everyday living, it's going to split his focus. And he'll not be able to have the wholehearted dedication necessary to be a successful soldier. And as a soldier of Jesus Christ We are to have a heart that is sold out to Him. He is to be our first love. Disciple making is to be our priority. And any daily living responsibilities that entangle us must be removed. You see that word entangle? It means to to weave, to braid. You know, we, we have the same concept in our day. Getting wrapped up. We say, well, you know, I'm just too wrapped up right now. I'm too tied up right now. Same word. Entangled. I'm too entangled right now. I'm just wrapped up in work so much. I just don't have time to be a disciple maker. Now, we all have responsibilities every day that we must fulfill as a part of living. But... When it becomes a problem is when we get wrapped up. When we get tied up in these responsibilities to such an extent that we cannot fulfill our call as a soldier of Jesus Christ to make disciples. As a soldier of Jesus Christ, I must ask myself, what has my commanding chief called me to do? What orders has he given me? His dying declaration was for me to make disciples. To be a disciple and to be a disciple maker. If I'm a father, I have responsibility for discipling my wife and my children. A mother has responsibility for discipling her children as well. Older women have responsibility for discipling younger women. Younger women disciple teenage girls. But we have the orders. I must not be so involved in daily activities of living that I am not allowing myself to fulfill my God-given responsibilities, His orders. I must not allow these living responsibilities to so cloud my vision or capture my heart that I cannot fulfill my responsibilities. That's why I think long and hard before I join any boards. I'm the member of two boards, the Christian Academy and Cobb Pregnancy Services. But I only joined those two after much thought and prayer because I did not want them to entangle me so that I could not fulfill my responsibility as a disciple maker. About 20 years ago, a wise man came up to me and he said, you know, you've got four daughters. That means you're going to have four weddings you're going to have to pay for. You better start saving up. If you've got daughters, that was wise advice. So I started looking into uh, saving up and, and I was introduced to mutual funds. And so I said, well, that, I guess that would be a good thing to do. And so I invested a meager amount. But for me, it was, it was a, 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 an amount into mutual funds. Well, you know what I noticed I was doing? Every day, I'd open up the newspaper. I'd go back to the business section. I'd go back to where the funds were. I'd locate my fund and I'd see what it did that day. Did it go up or did it go down? And do I need to move it? Do I need to put it in another fund? And I noticed that before I'd even have my quiet time, I was picking up the newspaper and wanted to see what my mutual fund was doing. God convicted me. He said, you're not to entangle yourself in the affairs of the world so that it hinders you from fulfilling your responsibility in the kingdom. So I quit looking at the newspaper. I said, God, it's yours. You have to take care of it. I'm the oldest person in my doctor ministry class. Some of the guys are young enough to be my kids. I'm older than my professors. There's only one professor, and he's just a year older than I am, that's older than me. Now, you know why I waited so long to go back to school? Because with six kids and a wife to disciple and church people to disciple... I couldn't do it without getting entangled. It was not until my youngest were 15 that Terry and I felt liberty for me to go back. We must not and allow the living responsibilities of life to so tie us up, so bind us that we cannot fulfill our responsibility to be disciple makers. Men, be careful that your hobbies don't tie you up. We must have that wholehearted dedication of a soldier. Secondly, we must have the rule-keeping obedience of an athlete. Verse 5, Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Paul, no doubt, had the athlete of the Isthmus Games, the forerunner of the Olympic Games in mind. How they would pull away and and rigorously train for eight to ten months before the contest. But you know, each contest has its rules. In high school, I did a little discus throwing. And the key word is little. Discus throwing. But I remember... The first day, the coach said, I want you to throw the discus. And he handed me this discus. And he walked me over to a circle that had been limed off. He said, there's one rule you've got to remember. you got to stay in that circle. If you get out of the circle, I don't care how far you throw the discus, it won't count. The rule is, you got to stay in that circle. You can throw it any way you want to throw it. You can throw it over your head. You can throw it between your legs. You just can't get outside that circle. That's the rule. Well, you know as well as I do, every game has its rules. And when people violate those rules, they get penalized. And not only penalized, but they may get disqualified. You see, if the rule says the rental starts on the line, he cannot start one half an inch in front of the line. You see, when it comes to rule keeping, that's no place to be creative. You know, I couldn't say, well, you know, I won't get in front of the front line of the circle, but what if I start off behind the back line? Maybe that'd be okay. Can't be creative. It's no place to be selective in deciding which rules you're going to obey. It's not even a place to be interpreted. Well, I interpret the rule this way. If an athlete is going to compete successfully, he must obey the rules. No matter how brilliant he is, he will never be crowned if he doesn't compete according to the rules. Jesse Owens competed in the 1936 Olympics that were held in Germany. He accomplished a feat by himself that shook the world. You see, this was the time that Hitler was coming to power in Nazi Germany. And as I said, the games were being held in Germany. You know, one of the main tenets of Nazism is what's known as Aryan supremacy. That the Aryan race, those of fair skin, light hair, are supreme to all others. Jesse Owens, an African American, non-Aryan, goes over to Germany, competes in those Olympics. He wins a gold medal in the 100 meter he wins a gold medal in the 200 meter. He wins a gold medal in the long jump. And he wins a fourth gold medal in the one 4x100 relay race. And one day, Jesse Owens debunked the myth of Aryan supremacy. Now, you can be certain that if he had not kept the rules, every one of the rules... Hitler would have found a way to have him disqualified. But he competed according to the rules. He knew how important the rules were. You see, the danger is that in our wholehearted dedication to serve God, that we might get outside the rules. In my service to be a disciple maker, I might get outside the rules because I'm so dedicated to do it. And so Paul says, oh no, no matter how dedicated the athlete is, he must compete according to the rules. The rules that you and I have in our disciple making is the Word of God. We must not go outside the perimeters of Scripture. There have been those who thought they could. You remember Uzzah? You remember David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. It had been in this farmer's house. And they were carrying it on an ox cart. And the ox cart hit a rut. And it dipped. And the Ark of the Covenant started sliding off. And Uzzah was standing next to it. And so to keep it from falling, which was an uh, admirable thing, he reaches up to catch it. And as soon as he touches it, he falls down dead. Because God had stated clearly in the rule book that you're not to touch the Ark of the Covenant. King Uzziah, the one that we hear about in the beginning of Isaiah's book, when he says in the year of the death of King Uzziah, he looked up and saw God in His glory. This king was very prosperous in Israel's history. But toward the end of his ministry, or his ruling, he got proud in his heart. You see, God had said in the rule book clearly that a king is to do certain things, and the priests are to do certain things. And the priest had the responsibility of going into the holy place, to the tabernacle, and presenting the offering of incense before the Lord. King Uzziah decided one day, I think I'm going to do that. I don't know why I cannot. I'm king. Most powerful man in the land. It's just a matter of putting some little incense on a fire. Surely I'm capable. Surely I'm able. I ought to have the authority to do it. And so he approaches the tabernacle and the priests realize what he's trying to do and they say, No, don't do this. This is wrong. No, I'm the king. He goes in. He offers the incense offering and God strikes him with leprosy. And you know how dreaded a disease that was in those days. And he spent the rest of his life as a leper. You see, he tried to serve God, but he was going outside the rules. God says that an elder is to be above reproach. That he is to have his family in order. The husband of one wife. And yet we have men in our day whose families have fallen apart and dissolved who think they can continue to serve as a pastor of a church. They're not serving according to the rule book. The Bible says that I am to disciple my wife, not somebody else's wife. The Bible says that women, older women are to disciple younger women, not disciple men. The Bible doesn't say younger women to disciple older women. We must serve God according to His rule book. Because if we break God's rules, we will not win the prize. Paul says he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. nineteen eighty eight Olympics in Seoul, Korea. The fellow on the right is Carl Lewis. You may recognize him, an American sprinter. The guy on the left is Ben Johnson, a Canadian sprinter. On this day in Seoul, Korea, nineteen eighty eight, Ben Johnson set the world record in the hundred meter dash Of 9.79 seconds. He was officially declared the fastest human being that has ever lived. Obviously, he won the gold medal. Within 60 hours of winning this race, he was disqualified. Because anabolic steroids were found in his system. Well, he competed. It looked like he was successful in his competition, didn't it? But he did not win the prize because he did not compete according to the rules. Paul, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, says a day is going to come when the Lord Jesus is going to judge our competing in the Christian life. And if we have not obeyed the rules, we will not win the prize. He says in chapter 3 beginning with verse 12, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved yet as through fire. Well, these pastors can continue to run in the race even though their marriages have fallen apart. They can even appear to be successful. But when the day comes, they're not going to win the prize because they've not competed according to the rules. They're women who are pastors, and they can even appear to be successful. But when the day comes, and they stand before the Lord Jesus, and the rule book is brought up, it will be nothing but hay, wood, and stubble. In our disciple making, we must compete according to the rules. We must have the rule-keeping obedience of an athlete. There's a third quality. We must have the persistent determination of a farmer. Paul goes on to say in verse 6, The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Now, when I think about a farmer of ancient times, I think about hard, tiring, strenuous labors. Now, I did not live on a farm. My dad grew up on a farm, and much of my knowledge of, The farm life comes from his stories, some I've shared with you. We did have a farm when I was growing up. He owned one as a hobby and something to keep me busy, I think, sometimes. And so I did have the privilege of enjoying some aspects of farm life, such as hauling hay, such as building a barn, such as mowing the pasture, Uh, such as fertilizing the pasture, such as picking up rocks and the field. I know there must be some pleasant aspects to farming, but I think he kept those to himself and just gave me the hard task. Those things were not fun to do. It was usually hot. It was usually humid. I was usually very tired and hungry before he was ready to stop. Well, the ancient farmer did not have it any better, but had it worse. In fact, the word for hard working in our passage, the noun, is the word beating. Now, we use that concept today too, don't we? Somebody's worked real hard and said, man, I took a beating today. I just feel like I've been whipped. I'm so tired. I am so worn out. We must be willing to work hard. If we're going to be a disciple maker. We must be willing to be persistent and work unto weariness. The disciple maker can expect to work hard. I mean, you come home from work and you're tired and you're worn out and all you want to do is sit down and vegetate in front of the TV. And you say, well, you know, I need to have discipleship with my kids. Or I need to go meet so-and-so and we need to have discipleship but you don't want to do it. You're tired. You're worn out. But because you have the persistent determination of a farmer, you're willing to do it. And you get up and you go make a disciple. Secondly, we must have the patience of a farmer. One thing about farming, it's not instantaneous. You plant the crop and you wait and you work it and you cultivate it and you wait and you wait. And finally, you may get to enjoy the fruit of it. You're discipling discipling your kids. Don't expect instant results. It will be years before you'll see the fruits of your labors. But be patient. Be patient. And then thirdly, we must not lose hope. Don't lose hope. The farmer continues day after day to work those crops because he has the hope that one day the harvest is going to be ready and he's going to get to enjoy that harvest. He can probably taste that corn in his mouth as he's working that cornfield, waiting for those crops to come about so he can have that corn. And the Bible says he deserves to enjoy the firstfruits. He's worked it. He deserves to enjoy it. Over in Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap, if we do not grow weary. So if you're going to be a disciple maker, you must have the wholehearted dedication of a soldier. You must have the rule-keeping obedience of an athlete. And you must have the persistent determination of a farmer. All of these qualities are summed up in the life of a missionary by the name of C.T. Studd. The first picture is C.T. in his early years. When fame and fortune awaited him. The second picture is C.T. Stud, the soldier of Jesus Christ. C.T. Studd was born in England in 1860. He was the son of a wealthy, retired planter who had earned his fortune in India. When C.T. Studd was 16, he was already an accomplished cricket player. By the time he was 19, he was captain of the cricket team in his college. At 18, he got saved. But he backslid for about six years. And then, after six years, he heard the preaching of D.L. Moody. And the Lord met him again. In a mighty way. And he knew God was calling him to become a missionary. Now, by this time, C.T. Studd had become one of the best cricket players in England. That's comparable to someone who has accomplished a great feat at an early age in a major sport in Ireland, such as Josh Smith who is the former teacher in high school basketball player who went from high school into the NBA. He plays for the Hawks now. He won the slam dunk contest last night. Some of you may have seen it uh, on TNT. He has great fame and fortune awaiting him. C.T. Studd stood at just such a gateway With the world of cricket opening up to him. The greatest sport of the land. But he knew God was calling him to be a missionary. So he gave up that fame. He surrendered to God's call and joined Hudson Taylor in China as a missionary. Now while he was in China as a missionary, he came 25 years of age this is significant because according to his father's will he would receive a fortune when he became 25 years of age as his inheritance as he was approaching this age of 25 he was praying what god would have him to do and he was convinced that god wanted him to give away most of his inheritance now, this was not just a foolish whim on his part, but he believed truly that God meant it in His Word when He said, when we give, that it will return to us tenfold. And he believed that we needed to obey what God said. So he gave a large amount of his money to D.L. Moody, a large amount to George Mueller, who ran the orphanage, and other large amounts to worthy causes. Within months, he found out how much his inheritance was, And when he found that out, he gave away still more. And ended up he only had 3,400 pounds left of his inheritance. A few months later, he married Priscilla Stewart. Just before their wedding, he presented her the rest of his inheritance as a wedding gift. She took it and said to him, C.T., what did Jesus tell the rich young ruler? He said, sell it all. She said, let's sell it all. Let's start off with a clear slate before the Lord. So they gave away the rest of their inheritance. Not only had He given up fame, but now He had given up fortune. And there they were, penniless. He continued to serve in China. He went on to serve in India. And when he was 50 years old, God so burdened his heart, was led to start the Heart of Africa mission. A work in Sudan at 50 years of age. When he was challenged by someone, why at this age would he be preparing for a life of inevitable hardship? You know what he said? He said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for Him. He stayed in Africa 21 years as a missionary, suffering weakness and sickness, losing most of his teeth, suffering several heart attacks. But he endured this hardness, this adversity, as a soldier of Jesus Christ. His life's motto was this. Some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. On a July night in 1931, C.T. Stud went to be with the Lord. As he was on his deathbed, he gave a dying declaration. His last word. After all those years of service as a dedicated soldier, as a persistent, hard-working farmer, as that rule-abiding athlete, his dying declaration, his last word was hallelujah. Praise God. Probably none of us are called to spend the rest of our life in Africa. But you are called to be a disciple maker in your family, in this church. Will you accept God's call in your life? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that it is through your grace and your strength now we can be that disciple-maker that You've called us to be. May we serve You in Your power. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to respond as the Holy Spirit has dealt with you today. If you need to come and pray, you feel free to do so. you need to talk to me about your relationship to Christ, How you can know Him in a personal way and experience that salvation that only He can give. If you step out, I'd love to talk with you as well. You just need to desire Christ. You don't have to know anything. I'll tell you everything you need to know. You just need to want Christ more than anything.